It's the 17th of December, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush. This week, good news, bad news, and fellowship matching. A lot of good news, great news even, if you're one of the new drugs with a new FDA indication. And yet, as always, an end and a but, there's a downside with some new serious safety warnings regarding the J&J COVID-19 vaccine. Which patient characteristics do you rely on to inform your choice of treatment? An exploratory study that looked at Orenzia, Abitacept, and a TNF inhibitor may provide some insights. Don't treat in the dark. Visit orenziadata.com. But at the top of the news, we're going to talk about matching. This is where we get this great new pool of talent who will soon become rheumatologists. Blink an eye, and yes, they will be full-fledged rheumatologist. The NRMP released its data this week on the Pediatric Fellowship um, Matching Program and two weeks ago on the um, uh, Adult uh, Rheumatology Fellowships. So good news for adults. I mean, almost all the programs, all the slots filled, 125 programs, 120 of them filled, 98% of rheumatology slots were taken. That's from 272 seats, 266 were filled. That's pretty good, meaning room has become quite competitive. Room is about one of five different disciplines with over 95% matching, and that included cardiology, pulmonary and critical care, hemonc, GI, allergy and immunology, and yes, you, the rheumatology people. Um, a lot's going on in rheumatology. No wonder everybody wants to go into it. Plus, we are the happiest of specialists. Um, so that's good news, and uh, congratulations to the fellowship program directors who were able to do that. Um, good news also for the from the NRMP regarding the pediatric uh, rheumatology positions. They also uh, matched this past week. We do need more uh, pediatric rheumatologists, and uh, unfortunately, not all spots were filled. 31% of positions um, were unfilled. 40% of the programs out there still have opening slots. So if you're looking for a fellowship and you're a pediatrician, you should be doing pediatric rheumatology. It's, in fact, I think pediatric rheumatology is, in fact, a wilder, more exciting area than adult rheumatology. So spread the word. We need to fill those spots as well. So a few weeks ago, we had news um, that about PRP. That's, you know, these injections that orthopedists do. It's kind of a scam if you ask me. And, and the research is showing that. Well done studies done and published um, a, about a month ago show that it didn't work in the ankle. Now we have a report from JAMA, the RESTORE trial, showing that PRP injections in NEO-A were no better than placebo. Uh, pretty much by all the scores um, on an 11-point scale, the changes in outcomes were a few points like one to two points, and no difference between placebo and PRP. Uh, yeah, it looks like it's um, something that you shouldn't be recommending in spite of your orthopedic colleagues who think that it might be the way to go. Of course, a lot of this is popularized by the use of these injections in high-profile athletes, whether it's golfers or football players and whatnot. I've seen that in the news. You know, someone big name is going to get a PRP injection and come back and throw seven touchdowns. Well, that doesn't happen. Uh, so a nice uh, study comes looking at cardiovascular mortality in 
uh, as relates to infection and inflammation. So the CDC has a multiple morbidity uh, database and an analysis of patients with infections and or inflammatory conditions over almost a 20 year period showed that the general population cardiovascular mortality decreased from 1999 to 2018 from 41% down to 31%. Um, but for certain infections, mortality, um, cardiovascular mortality went up. That was especially true in um, cardiovascular uh, mortality associated with hepatitis C infection um, when it went up from 7 to 10%, and HIV when it went up from 2 to 6.7%. Interestingly, while um, our diseases, RA, IBD, PSO, psoriasis, and, SL and SLE, there was an initial decrease. There has since been a plateau um, suggesting maybe we're doing a good job of controlling inflammation. But um, uh, clearly a difference between what's happened with some infections and some inflammatory conditions. You know, there's a lot, we've made a lot about telemedicine in the last uh, two uh, podcasts. I think that uh, it's something that rheumatologists need to embrace. There's a lot of data that's coming out about it. One data, uh, one report might say that patients love it uh, and that in all of its advantages, a recent report um, from the UK, looked at surveys of patients and physicians, um, 1,300 patients, 11, uh, 111 physicians, and then interviews with both patients and physicians uh, between April, uh, at two different time points, April and June of 2021. And overall, patients and physicians preferred face-to-face -face visits over telemedicine in pretty much all categories. Um, there was some concern about I guess, you know, trust issues and truthfulness, you know, being better face-to-face -face as opposed to on, on, the, uh, on the internet. Uh, I think some of the, I, I think that these kind of surveys often mirror the, um, the beliefs of the physicians that's imparted upon their patients. I think if you taught, if you surveyed patients who were, uh, who were being treated by physicians who really thought that, uh, who were good at telemedicine, embraced telemedicine, I think you might get a slightly different opinion, but this particular report was against it. So if you're against it, congratulations, here's a report you can point to that says, this is why I'm not going to do it. But we do need more research um, to sort of really analyze this issue as to whether it should be an integral part of what the care that we deliver to our patients. Uh, Cochrane analysis, you know, they do lots of things. They actually analyze the use of non-steroidals, non-steroidals against placebo, non-steroidals against, um, uh, prednisone, non-steroidals, the non-selective non-steroidals versus the COX-2, all of this in acute gout management. And yes, you know that non-steroidals work in acute gout. No big surprise there. Superior to placebo when it comes to pain. Um, some interesting things. After day four um, of treatment with either placebo or uh, non-steroidal, there's no difference as far as swelling or function. That's kind of interest, interesting. It really tells you that you have a narrow window that you really have to be powerful with your anti-inflammatory approach. Um, overall, no difference between non-selective non-steroidals and COX-2 inhibitors as far as efficacy. However, the COX-2s were safer and had um, less adverse events than did uh, that would seem with a non-selective. And by there, I'm talking diclofenac, naproxen, etc. And lastly, steroids and non-steroidals also did equally well, but steroids tended to have um, um, more 
uh, well, actually, non-steroidals tend to have more adverse events and withdrawals. So, me, I acute gout. I like steroids, um, and then I like non-steroidals, and I'm almost never going to use colchicine. Um, but it's in the mix, and historically, everyone seems to love it. I don't know why uh, these other drugs work just as well, um, if not better, and see, I think are safer in the long run. Um, we're going to talk about pregnancy um, in uh, some of our uh, cases in our um, Ask Kush Anything section at the end of this podcast. We'll take uh, calls from um, viewers like yourself. Um, this particular report looked at what happens to the offspring of men with inflammatory arthritis um, and whether or not that their disease imparts any influence on the outcome. This is a study of 408 men who fathered um, almost 900 pregnancies and almost 800 um, live births. And the bottom line is that when the pregnancy was conceived after the male had an inflammatory arthritis diagnosis and usually then was treated, um, but it's, uh, we're looking here at the influence of the inflammatory arthritis, there was a higher rate of miscarriage. Now. Miscarriage seems to show up as an adverse outcome in pregnancies associated with inflammatory arthritis in women, um, but also here in men. Interestingly, you know, the ACR reproductive health guidelines clearly show that men can be treated with almost anything and not affect the outcome of the pregnancy. Almost anything. And I, I, cyclophosphamide probably is the one thing you wouldn't want them to take. But even mycophenolate, which is strongly, strongly advised against with women who are, want to get pregnant, um, uh, men can take that safely and not affect the outcomes. So I don't know if you, if you feel the way I do about scleroderma. I don't, you know, I worry about scleroderma. I don't think we have enough options. I, I hate the outcomes in scleroderma, I, especially since I don't have something that's going to change the course. This is an analysis of 310 scleroderma patients. Um, 63 had diffuse disease, 279 had limited disease, so this is mainly limited or crest disease. 33 had that unusual scleroderma, sine scleroderma, mostly GI um, disease. And when you look at survival, how many, you know, overall for the whole group, survival wasn't very much affected at one year, two year, five years. But at 10 years, survival, 10 year survival, 78%. 15 year survival, 61%. And, uh, you know, after this, the, again, most of the were overall 69 deaths, that almost half of the um, deaths and those who did not survive had the diffuse form of uh, PSS. And they tended to die from, as you might suggest or might guess, interstitial lung disease, um, pulmonary artery, hypertension, and GI involvement. So that's the bad group. That's the one we don't have many options for. Those are the ones we need to worry about. So I don't know if this is goofy or this is the future peeking through, but at the um, Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City, they were the first to do a smart knee arthroplasty or a smart knee joint replacement. What's a smart knee? I think there's a lot of jokes around this, but I'll give you the data. This means that the arthroplasty, the implant, was um, has a, a sensor built into it and the sensor can feed back information to the home center, the orthopedist about steps, speed, range of motion, knee function or in, in a very global fashion. 
uh, and may speak to um, overall success or um, be able to better analyze failures in patients post-arthroplasty. It's called Persona IQ. It is FDA approved. Um, um, maybe we'll see more smart joints. This is one of the issues when it comes to the future of rheumatology. Is there a way we can do remote monitoring and whatnot? Something other than your Fitbit, like what I'm wearing here. Um, and this might be the way to do it. Of course, one has to get a arthroplasty, but who's to say we couldn't actually inject um, sensors into joints um, and be able to monitor what's going on. Maybe even look at some biometrics and biomarkers. It is said that patients with fibromyalgia can sometimes be difficult to manage, especially the 30% of patients who have psychiatric um, disorders like depression, anxiety, PTSD, etc. But how many have depression so bad that suicide um, and suicide uh, suicidal thinking um, is in play. I don't really know the number for that. And actually, so that's why this report I found to be interesting. Um, in this one analysis showed that suicidal ideation, almost 30% of patients with fibromyalgia. Attempts at suicide was 5.7% or that fibromyalgia patients had a threefold higher risk of actually attempting suicide. An actual suicide um, is about a 38% uh, increased risk of suicide amongst patients with fibromyalgia. However, if you factor out, correct these analyses by taking out the psychiatric illness, these numbers were not significant. So the risk of suicidality, it's ideation or thinking and, or events was associated with unemployment, disease severity, obesity, addiction, chronic pain, and comorbidities. Um, such patients clearly would be difficult to manage and one we need to pay particular attention to. So there's good news from a regulatory standpoint. SOBI, the makers of Anakinra, also known as Kinneret, received a positive opinion by the EMA uh, and the CHMP who makes recommendations to the EMA uh, they have recommended Kinneret for use in COVID-19 patients who have severe disease, meaning that they're hospitalized with pneumonia and either requiring supplemental oxygen or at risk for progression to respiratory failure. This is not yet approved by the EMA. Uh, they're considering it um, and we'll announce that at a time in the near future. Um, BMS received a new indication for its drug Abitacep, also known as Orencia. Orencia is now the first drug to be FDA approved for the prevention of acute graft versus host disease. This is particularly important patients undergoing either bone marrow transplant or stem cell transplant. Um, and it's based on a clinical trial where um, those who received Orencia had an overall better survival um, compared to those who were on placebo, 98 versus 75%. So, a new indication outside of rheumatology for uh, abitasa. Maybe the big news occurred on Tuesday this week when the FDA approved two JAK inhibitors for two new indications. Tofacitinib was approved for use in ankylosing spondylitis. Um, that's based on a phase three trial of almost 270 patients who basically against placebo had uh, really good ASAS 20, ASAS 40 responses 
with a week 16 endpoint. Um, no new um, safety signals were generated in that. This announcement probably should have happened earlier in the year, but was delayed with the FDA's consideration and analysis of the oral surveillance study, which sort of delayed a lot of things as far as new JAK inhibitor and new drug approvals. This is one such um, drug that was delayed. And the other one that was delayed was uh, upadacitinib was approved on Tuesday for use in psoriatic arthritis. That's adults with active psoriatic arthritis unresponsive to other therapies. Um, there, that approval is based on phase three trials. A select PSA one, select PSA two trial showed both efficacy and safety against placebo um, using the 15 milligram dose. So both of these JAK inhibitors are going to get their indication. Both are probably not going to be used as first line therapy because yes, the oral surveillance has led to a new boxed warning for all JAK inhibitors in our field. And that will say, you know, you worry about cancer, worry about cardiovascular risk. And oh, by the way, you shouldn't be considering a JAK inhibitor before, consider, before using and trying a TNF inhibitor. That's in the package insert um, and one you need to pay attention to. Uh, the other big news I think came out just yesterday, um, the CDC's um, panel on immunization practices, the ACIP, sort of had a, um, an urgent meeting um, to consider the safety of the J&J &J, uh, adenovirus COVID-19 vaccine. And they, uh, at the end of their hearing, came away with a recommendation that Americans should probably be receiving the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer, BioNTech, and from Moderna before the consideration of using the Janssen single-dose adenovirus COVID-19 vaccine. Why, you ask? Well, you might remember back in April, there was a pause on the use of this because the FDA was analyzing six cases of blood clots associated with the use of the J&J of the vaccine, that there was uh, reports in other countries of them being concerned about thrombotic risk, places like Greece and I don't know where else. But um, now we're at a point where the FDA has further studied. So they, they had it on temporary hold. They said the benefits outweigh the risks. And that's clearly true. You know, uh, uh, so far, the numbers of people that have received these vaccines, if there's 200 million people who received um, the uh, vaccination against COVID, uh, 17 million have received uh, the J&J the &J vaccine. Um, so clearly there's been much more benefit than potential harm because we're talking about 54 cases now who have this new TTS syndrome. It's called thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome, TTS. Again, 54 cases that we know about, probably a lot more it's estimated that the incidence rate here is 3.83 cases per million, or if you're in the highest risk group, which is women between the ages of 30 and 49, it's roughly one per 100,000 doses given. So this is really rare stuff, right? But it's not so much a slam of the J&J &J vaccine as much as it's saying, we don't have this with the mRNA vaccine. So use the mRNA vaccines first. And if you have to use J&J, &J, then go ahead. But there is this small risk. There's no box warning here. Um, the F this is not an FDA action. This is a CDC ACIP recommend recommendation. 
Um, in the analysis of available data, you know, these patients have early stroke-like symptoms. They have headache, they have dizziness, they have some, they have weakness, and then they go on to have thrombosis and or bleeding. And it's estimated that there could be as much as a 15% mortality rate to someone who's diagnosed with this TTS. So be on the lookout, um, you get such cases, you should report them to the FDA. So let's, gonna, let's end with a few cases from people, rheumatologists like yourself. The first one comes from uh, Dr. Joe Thomas. Um, he's gonna ask us about zoster. I'm Dr. Joe Thomas from India. I'm a rheumatologist and I have a, a question for you. The patient uh, on say rheumatoid arthritis on jack inhibitors develop herpes zoster. Uh, we stop the medication, we treat and adequately treated patient recovers. The question is, can we start restart the jack inhibitors? Is there a chance that patient again redevelops uh, jack, uh, you know, uh, herpes zoster? Or is there any possibility that develop next time more disseminated infections? And uh, because in India, we do not have a vaccination for herpes zoster. It's not yet available. So please do let me know. I am a, you know, keen admirer and follower of room now for a very long time. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Um, so the problem here is this is an episode of zoster occurring and someone on a JAK inhibitor, not surprising. You know, in the US, patients go, in my practice, who go on JAK inhibitors, I would vaccinate before, if at all possible, with the Shingrix vaccine, but that's not available in, in India. So the bottom, num bottom line numbers are that, you know, um, you and I might have a risk of 10 per thousand to get zoster. On a TNF inhibitor, it's 15 per thousand getting zoster. If you're on a JAK inhibitor, it's anywhere from 35 to 50, 35 to 45. So yeah, it's higher. So what he said was they stopped the JAK inhibitor. They got, oh, they treated the zoster. The patient's over the zoster. What do you do? Number one, you don't go back on a JAK inhibitor. What are the chances of getting zoster again? If you got zoster once, you're protected somewhat, but RA patients can get it again. And that's why we do recommend Chingrix vaccination or Zostavax no longer available in the United States. So they can't do that. The best thing he can do is treat the RA, but do not use a JAK inhibitor. Use any other biologic or DMARD and, and the risks are going to be low. Are there, is, a, is there a higher risk of dissemination? Not with, again, non-TNF um, biologics and not with DMARDs like the Reva and methotrexate. But if you go on a JAK inhibitor, yes, there is a risk of dissemination, which is why you should not go on a JAK inhibitor. So here's another one from uh, Canada, um, Dr. Nayef um, Alganin, Alganin, Alganin. Nayef, let's hear from you. Hi, Jack. Uh, my question is regarding uh, lupus patient with pulmonary hemorrhage and, and whether we should use uh, um, plasma exchange for those patients as there is no clear guideline. Thank you. Tough case. Um, you know, uh, I've seen a fair amount, a good amount um, in the county hospital over the years in my practice with pulmonary hemorrhage. My analysis uh, 10 years ago was that the only thing that was associated with death 
in those people was not receiving pulse steroids. So my number one rule is if you've got uh, or you suspect alveolar hemorrhage, if you suspect lupus pneumonitis, you should be suspecting alveolar hemorrhage, and especially in patients who have a rapid drop in their hemoglobins. Um, and so uh, pulse dose of steroids, three days, a gram of salumedrol is my first maneuver. Uh, aggressive treatment of their disease. You know, they're going to need supportive care, uh, um, aggressive supportive care during this period. Um, they may need to be started on new immunosuppressive therapy. Is there an advantage, as, as he is asking, to using, um, you know, a plasma exchange? Uh, this is a condition that has a fair amount of mortality. Um, we have done it, uh, you know, I say over the years, I probably have seen a good 50, maybe 60 cases. We probably have done it five times, and it usually was in the worst cases, and maybe half of them lived. So uh, there is no clear guideline as to who should get it and when. Uh, if you talk to the people who do plasma exchange for a living, they'll tell you that this is a clear-cut indication. I'm not against it. Um, there sometimes is an access issue to getting it or a cost issue, but uh, patients who are severe enough, yes, I would use it, and I don't think you can be wrong. But right now, there is no clear guideline as to who should get it, who shouldn't. Our last case, um, Dr. Bathula. I have a young 25-year-old female with lupus, and she has triple positive antiphospholipid antibodies on two different occasions, 12 weeks apart, period. She never had a clotting event so far, period. Should she be on any prophylactic anticoagulation? Come on. Like at least baby aspirin. And should she receive Lovonax prophylaxis if she gets pregnant, period. All right, so common issue, this does come up. I wanna point you, um, uh, Dr. Bethula, to the RoomNow channel or uh, the RoomNow website or the uh, our YouTube channel um, and look for the video on thrombotic events by Dr. Petrie done in 2020. And then she also did a lecture on this at RoomNow Live in 2021. She addresses these very strongly. So the first issue is, should the patient be treated, even though there's not been any event because there's triple positivity? First off, we gotta define triple positivity. Triple positivity is not, you know, IgA, IgM, IgG antibodies against cardiolipin or whatever test you're doing. Triple positivity means there's a lupus anticoagulant, there's an anti-cardiolipin antibody, and there's a beta-2 glycoprotein antibody, usually IgA. That's triple positivity. Dr. Petrie is very clear in her um, data analysis of 900 patients at the, in, at the Hopkins uh, lupus clinic, that the risk factor is driven by LAC, lupus anticoagulant, lupus anticoagulant, lupus anticoagulant. And she says that if you are doing this repeatedly, she says lupus anticoagulant will fluctuate, go up and down like double-stranded DNA. If you do this repeatedly and 20, more than 25% of the time it is positive, that person's at higher risk. If that person is at higher risk because of greater than 25% positivity of LAC, but also is IgA beta-2 glycoprotein positive, they're even at higher risk. 
And even though the patient's not had any symptoms, yes, they should be on baby aspirin, and yes, they should be on hydroxychloroquine, because hydroxychloroquine is an effective antithrombotic intervention. No, they should not be on any more therapies until they have an actual event. The answer is the same with regard to this woman, should she want to get pregnant, as she's not had any problems with fetal loss or thrombotic events during pregnancy. She should be on, and because of this positivity and LAC, if it is positive, she's at higher risk for preeclampsia. So should she, she should be on low-dose aspirin and hydroxychloroquine, low-dose aspirin up to week 32, all right? You know, last few weeks, you have to get rid of that because of the premature closure of the ductus arteriosus, right? But um, whether or not the patient should be on Lovenox or heparin really uh, is not advised until the patient has a clear-cut event risk. So look at those videos. The other thing is the ACR guideline pretty much says the same thing. Um, and you can look up the ACR guideline in arthritis and rheumatology. That's it for this week on the podcast. Be sure to check out the website for these citations. Next week, uh, next two weeks, we'll be giving you the best of um, from 2021. And we'll see you in the new year. Take care. While there is great hope that an understanding of biomarkers will benefit rheumatoid arthritis patient management, there are but a few biomarkers shown to be both diagnostic and prognostic. Researchers have suggested that RA patients who test positive for specific autoantibodies may express higher disease activity, which could impact treatment strategies, but most practitioners generally use these results only for diagnostic purposes. Bristol-Myers-Squibb is investigating treatment outcomes in a unique patient population, patients who tested positive for these antibodies, which together are associated with higher disease activity. Rheumatologists may want to consider these biomarker-driven results when considering treatment options. To learn more, please visit rabiomarkers.com.